The date is the Thursday, the 15th of March. I'm Jason England, and welcome to Learn Something, the official podcast of NewRisingMedia.com, where I consume your brain space with weird and wonderful facts that you've probably never heard before. Now, on this week's show, I had some interesting facts planned. The idea of it was going to be a primarily wearable technology-based episode, but given news surrounding one of my greatest heroes, Stephen Hawking. I'm going to dedicate a part of the show to him as well. Buckle in. From weird facts about Stephen Hawking's amazing cosmological discoveries to what strange things people think are the future of wearable tech. This is going to be a pretty, quite the belter of an episode. So stick around. It's going to be fun. And so we start the episode with the man himself, Stephen Hawking. Now, as many of you already know from looking at messages or looking at um, the obituary that I posted on newrisingmedia.com, on the 14th of March, in the early hours, Stephen Hawking died at the age of 76, finally falling victim to the motor neurone disease that he was diagnosed with at a young age. And while it was horrific news to hear, and my heart and sincerest condolences go out to friends and family of Stephen, and I say that on behalf of probably a lot of fellow human beings, that's we thank you for your inspiration and your constant sorry it's a difficult one Uh, thank you for being a constant inspiration and being an amazing mind it was amazing to see what he did in the shadow of death all the inhibitions all the hesitations and any self-doubt falls away in the face of your own mortality and the incredible work completed by Hawking proves this and the fact that his disability did not get in the way of him doing some amazing things is a message that the world needs to know that you shouldn't let things stop you from becoming the person that you can be. And it's a message that I will definitely take forward with me in my life. And I hope you do too. So I will be sharing just three facts about Stephen Hawking. And I start with one of his more curious ideas that will make you chuckle and one that was definitely an incredibly fascinating perspective. And I take you back to the 28th of June 2009 as Stephen was looking for an interesting test of his 1992 conjecture that travel into the past is effectively impossible. He basically wanted to disprove time travel. And to do so, he had a strange idea. Hawking 
held a party that was open to all, complete with hors d'oeuvres and iced champagne that was poured into a pyramid of champagne flutes. But the party was only publicised afterwards. So the only people that would realistically know and be able to attend the party were time travellers. And as you could expect, nobody actually attended the party. And you can see some of the footage in the documentary that was made about Stephen. And it just shows the amount of spectacle that was actually at this party. And it was a party of one. So I hope you had an amazing time. And yeah, any time travellers on any multiple timelines want to go back and prove us wrong, then please feel free to do so. Next up, he was up for a knighthood in the 1990s, in the late 1990s. But he turned it down. He didn't want to be Sir Stephen Hawking. And why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons flying about. First of all, one of his main reasons was in an interview, he explained in interviews that he dislikes the whole concept. But probably more relevant is that the scientist was also an open critic of the British government's mismanagement of science funding at the time. In particular, he disliked the merger of the Particle Physics and Astronomy Research Council with the Council for the Central Laboratory of the Research Councils, believing they should remain separate entities for optimal discovery. And the fact that the funding of said areas of science was so underwhelming to actually limit our ability to make these discoveries was one of the primary reasons behind him reportedly declining the knighthood from the Queen herself. Obviously, <clears throat> it's not a case of the Queen says, would you like to be a knight? And he goes ahead and says, no. Go and shove it or whatever, daft like that. Um, what actually happens is it's kind of a back and forth discussion that happens preliminarily before the official offer is made. And the lack of interest is kindly communicated to the Queen so that she doesn't make the offer in the first place. So that's actually what happens behind the scenes, but that's essentially Stephen Morgan snubbing a knighthood because of his own personal beliefs, and I applaud him for that. And finally, we look towards his family, and more specifically, Stephen Hawking's son. Now, there was a BBC documentary called Dara O'Brien meets Stephen Hawking. Quite a simple name, really. Um, and it showed just what was happening behind the scenes in the family. Um, one of his kids, born between 1967 and 1979, named Tim Hawking, reminisced in the 2015 documentary about his father's fight with motor neurone disease, which slowly robbed him of his ability to verbally communicate until he passed away. And he spoke about a lot of things and it got really personal. Quote unquote, my dad was able to speak with his own natural voice for those first few years, but it was incredibly, incredibly difficult to understand what he was saying, particularly for me at such a young age. 
As a three-year-old, I had no understanding of what he was saying. I didn't really have any communication with him for the first five years of my life. But the breakthrough came for the whole family when his father received the computer-driven speech program called Equalizer. It was only when he got that voice synthesizer that I was actually able to start having conversations with him, he added. It was somewhat ironic that dad losing his voice was actually the start of us being able to form a relationship. And what was that relationship based on? Pranks. Pretty hilarious pranks. Such as using his specialised wheelchair as a go-kart and adding swear words to his speech programme. My, my, Stephen Hawking, you potty mouth. (laughs) The pair also boarded over board games and they were fiercely competitive at it. I think that's an amazing humanising fact. And also imagining swear words in the synthesised voice of Stephen Hawking still makes me chuckle a little bit. And now we move on to wearable technology. And the reason why I picked this topic, I went to the wearable technology show yesterday at the London Excel Center. Um, Certainly a fascinating show to go to, especially to see what companies believe is the future of wearable tech. Also, because it's actually quite close to Canary Wharf and they have a pretty sweet street food area. And went there, had a couple of beers, saw some of the generic douchey bankers that walk around there. And also saw a couple of dogs, some pretty cute ones. But that's separate of the point. I shouldn't be talking about dogs. I should be talking about wearable tech. And many still, some companies still believe that the future of wearable tech is in the form of a Google Glass style device, like one such company. I will not reveal names because it wants to be off the record have essentially like a pair of headphones with that Google Glass stalk attached to it. And it's all controllable via a laptop style trackpad on the side of that stalk that has the little chunk of glass on the end that kind of projects the image into your eyeballs. And the interface, obviously it's a prototype, so the interface is understandably slow, but even when it gets up to full speed, I really, really can't see this being transformative. It wasn't transformative when glass was around, And it's not going to be transformative now. Primarily because nobody's going to buy it. Primarily because it's slower than just getting your phone out of your pocket and watching something. Obviously, I understand that for technology to work, things have to be disruptive. And sometimes they are. But they are disruptive for being more convenient than the original iteration of said technology. Which this isn't. But I digress. There were three key trends coming out of this year's Wearable Tech Show. Um, the first one I decided to call Health Minimized. So one of the more consistent areas of wearable tech at the show has definitely been in the region of health wearables. And I'm not talking about stuff that tracks your steps. I'm talking about stuff that tracks your heartbeat, tracks your blood pressure has an ECG built into it and can actively monitor and using predictive algorithms recommend better healthcare plans for you or better pharmaceutical plans. Stuff that our 
defunded, constantly defunded NHS could probably use to help optimise their workflows and help treat more people. Um, one such thing was the Ouya ring. And I've seen generation after generation of this starting in 2015 when I first got my hands on one. 2016 got a little bit smaller and 2017 it now actually does just look like a ring. It doesn't look like a giant gem on your finger or anything. It just looks like a ring. And I think that's great. Like the more minimized you can make wearable tech and the more understated and more well-designed you can make it, such as this ring, the better. Second trend was a giant push into VR and AR without anything really new happening in the areas. Like, obviously I know it's a form of wearable tech, but it was primarily just used for good demos there. Like, probably the more exciting demo was the one from the Leicestershire Fire Service. That was essentially letting you like survey a particular scene of crime where there had been a fire, which is pretty cool. And last but not least is actual embroidery. So instead of sticking wearable techs, wearable gadgets on you, your clothes become your wearable tech. And particular shout out to Nottingham Trading University, holla, and the University of Southampton for having their own particular versions of it, including the simple stuff such as light up clothes or audio sensing clothing to help protect hearing of soldiers out in the battlefield or even <coughs> temperature sensing socks to help identify if there are any particular heat and hot points on your feet and actually help improve posture as well through use of different sensors across the foot. All of this stuff speaks for quite an incredibly ambitious future in two of the areas. One, probably not so much, and that would be VR and AR. That's kind of consumerized at the moment. It's going through a very slow path of iteration. But innovation was definitely there, and it was exciting to see. So look out on newrisemedia.com for a full feature on what I saw. Next up, I found out that the first example of a wearable computer was a ring that was a usable abacus all the way back in 16th century China. In the Xing Dynasty, there was the fully functional abacus on the ring and it could be used while it was being worn. Hence, wearable technology. I thought this was pretty novel, actually. And something that was pretty... It just shows, like, the ingenuity of humans and the, port the desire to make everything portable. It's pretty cool. Anyway, on to the last one. And finally, we're going to talk about actual wearable computer. Not like an abacus, like a countless wearable computing, an actual wearable computer. And the first one was conceived in 1955 by the author Edward O'Thorpe. And he used it to predict and cheat at roulette. 
So how did the computer work? Well, it was designed in a joint effort at MIT with Claude Shannon in 1960 to 1961 after the conceptualization in 1955. The final operating version was tested in Shannon's basement home lab in June of 1961. This cigarette pack sized analog device yield an expected gain of 44% increased betting odds on the most favoured octants of the roulette board. They tested a computer in Las Vegas in the summer of 61, and the predictions there were consistent with the lab- laboratory expected gain of 44%, but a minor hardware problem deferred sustained serious betting. We kept the method and the existence of the computer secret until 1966 and of course there's been this paper since then so essentially it would use a variety of predictions and algorithms looking at the speed of the ball in the actual roulette wheel and being able to accurately give you a general idea of where the ball will land helping you pick a particular eighth of the board that is pretty incredible And that, ladies and gentlemen, is it for this episode. And I want to take the time to thank you all for listening, whether I'm in your ears while you're walking home or whether you're in the car, wherever you may be. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen and check this out. If you're on Anchor, uh, I am always on the lookout for call-ins. Love to have a discussion with any of you about the topics raised. It'd be great to chat. So do use the call-in function and I will definitely get you on the next week's episode. If you're listening to this on any other podcast service, thank you for doing so and hello. Um, I really appreciate a thumbs up, five-star review and a follow and a subscribe um, on whatever respective channel you are on. Any kind of feedback helps me improve this episode in the future, but... Not only that, it helps learn something appear higher in search results and helps increase the audience. And I'd love to talk to more of you and have an open conversation with you all about any kind of super geeky topics. So that's me. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and I will talk to you soon. Bye.